0: Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics!
1: Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger.
0: Here are your hosts, Andrew and
1: Michael Leyland. Hello everybody. Hello everyone. And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. A very special episode. They're all special. Yeah. But we sell that every week. And they're, they're special <laughs> every week. <laughs> they are. These are true facts. Um, <laughs> this week, we don't try to be topical. No. He says, as he constantly tries to be topical. But this day, two, count them, two pictures were released of upcoming television projects. The first one shows Matt Ryan I don't know who he is either (laughs) as John Constantine
0: What do you think of that,
1: Michael? Why are you? I think that's great. I think that looks really good. That's really grown on me since the first. Because the first time I saw it, I saw it on my phone, yeah. and I kind of just glanced at it. Ben and uh, Chris Warden and sent it me. Ben Rush, and I just glanced at it because I was shopping with your mom, and it's like, yeah, it looks alright. But when I've got home and looked at it properly, I think that looks
0: pretty damn good. It looks fine, yeah. But I have, I don't, I'm not interested in the TV show because I the the cynic in me knows it won't be. All that good. God, to be a teenager again and it'll, everything. It, it'll be written for the Constantine fanbase. What, so what's wrong with that? Well, the Constantine wasn't very good, as you can hear in...
1: the uh, <laughs> <laughs> <my> previous episode. <laughs> yeah. All right, not the Hellblazer no, no, no. fanbase. Yeah. So you think this'll be John Constantine New 52 Division... Yes. ...and not John
0: Constantine Hellblazer. We, we know that from looking at him, because he doesn't look over the age of 20... Oh, I think he looks about 20, 28, 29. I don't mind
1: Constantine being third on the cusp of 30. That's, I can live with that. I think that looks pretty good. And I'm much more inclined to give it a go now I've, I've seen that picture. I think that looks all right. I'm waiting for all the complaints that uh, they're just ripping off Supernatural. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> Castiel. Well, he was actually desi- based on... Exactly, exactly the point yeah, that I'm so. trying to make. Also released
1: this week, Grant Gustin's first shot as The Flash. What do you think of that one? It looks wrong. Why? What looks wrong with it? It just looks wrong. I don't mind it. I think it looks okay. I mean, I am going to say I think John Wesley Ship's costume looks better. Yeah. And... A number of candid shots have shown up on the internet of them filming, which don't look very good. It's way too baggy for someone who travels at the speed of light. I was thinking it's a little bit baggy and a little bit too leather biker look, but I think the official photo looks fine. I think the candid shots are going to look a bit, what's it? because they're candid. Yeah. They're not in the proper light or in the proper context. And The Batman Begins outfit didn't look very good in shots I saw before the film, and then it looked fine in the film. Yeah. So there's all that. I mean, that, that being said, John Wesley ship looked fine, mm-hmm. whether you saw him behind the scenes or on film. And Christopher Reeve never looks anything but Superman, Yeah. whether you see him in behind the scenes shots on the Cape Wonder Facebook page or whatever. So it can happen that the guy looks perfect
0: on and off, yeah. But I think it looks okay. And Willis given him benefit of the doubt. It doesn't benefit from them removing the yellow stripes and ears. Well, he's still got the ears. Not as much as in the comics. I
1: mean, my thing is why have they changed the colouring of the, the flash emblem? Yeah. I don't I don't understand that. Well, but Superman
0: you know. in Man of Steel, his costume benefited from not being the classic Superman look. Why? From a 21st century he audience... Did, yeah, that... It, the kind of comic world we are now, that's benefited for this audience. And
1: technically it is from the comics. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the Man of Steel costume's better than the new 52 costume. Yeah. Because at least the Man of Steel costume didn't look like armour. Mm. Now I know there's a ton of people now raising their ire and saying, "No not armour! I know it's not armour. It looks like it, though. Hmm. So don't get on your eye and don't email us in about that. I know
0: it isn't armour, but it looks like armour in the comics. Even the Green Arrow costume in the TV show looks good and benefits. On the show? Yeah. yeah. But this doesn't even look good from that. It, it, it would look better if it stuck to the comics. Yeah, I,
1: I think they've been far more influenced by Arrow's costume though, Yeah. than by the comic book. Version of the costume. As I say, I'm, I'm predisposed to liking it because I liked him in Arrow. Yeah. And I liked the origin that they gave Barry Allen. The Flashpoint one. Yeah, the, pretty the, much. Yeah, yeah, it's the rebirth Flashpoint thing. Um, I didn't like the music when the lightning strikes and he gets hit by the chemicals. It's very bland and muted and boring. Yeah. And so I rewound it and watched it just going. And
0: it worked so much better. Fair enough. Which which my opinion. So, he'd, he'd still be better if he was blonde, you know, like Barry Allen actually is. Yeah, okay,
1: if you're going to complain about her colour, <laughs> I suppose, yeah, fair enough. Okay. I like him. I think that they've both got a lot of potential. Everything has a lot of potential. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's all going to be in the execution, isn't yeah. it? It's all going to be in how well they handle... The the shows themselves. Speaking of Constantine, our first email this week is from John Wilson, and it's entitled Constantine. It's like... We plan these. We things. plan this stuff, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And we do we put an awful lot of thought into this. Did we? I knew last week that they were going to release that picture of John
0: Constantine, and I saved this email for that reason. It, it's like um, those people in conversations and websites yeah. where they say, this is going to happen in this TV show. I know because my dad works for the company. Yeah, see, I knew they were going to release that picture. I'm just clairvoyant. Yeah. yeah.
1: When it was announced that Hellblazer would be ending in three months, start John, I decided that I needed to educate myself on this character and his method. I started on an ambitious project to read the entire run in three months. I'm shocked by that news, John. But other things got in the way and I only got about 75 issues into it before putting it on hold to pursue other pursuits po- of worthy persuasion. But when Constantine 1 came around, I did feel like I had a basic understanding of the character and I didn't feel like the debut issue was far from the mark. Andy's word of obvious was definitely the word of the day for the new series, but what Hellraiser had developed subtly over 300 issues, it seemed like they were. ...trying to throw down our throat in one, but in a much tamer version. And although I was sad to see so many of my Hellblazer fans' friends dismayed by the new version... ...I was ready to settle in for the ride. Since then, my opinion has changed a bit. Doctor Strange in a trench coat is who it seems we've gotten. He wields magic like a superhero. And it's only his snide demeanour and chain-smoking that seem to set him apart as a unique character... Although I do want to enjoy Justice League Dark more than I do, I only read Constantine when I have to because it ties into some other story, e.g. Forever Evil Blight. I do plan to get back to Hellraiser eventually. Maybe if I've gotten further into my Bronze Age swamp thing reading, I'll just start back at issue 1 and follow up on his appearances in that book. As it is, I thank you for giving the book a first shake and sharing your opinions with us in your usual calm and collected manner. <laughs> I said sarcasm. <laughs> But what's this you say about Morrison's action comics not making sense? I beg to differ, my podcastery friends, but that's a discussion for another time. John M. Wilson. I don't remember much about action comics now. Um, I don't remember liking it. I don't remember disliking it. It's that. Actually, do you know, that's possibly the worst thing you can say about a Grant Morrison piece of work. don't remember it. I don't remember it. It left no, it left no impression on me. Yeah. I didn't hate it. I didn't like it. It was just the... At least with Morrison, I normally have an opinion.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I didn't really have an opinion of it, but I do keep meaning to go back and reread all of it. But the first... Because um, the way I remember it is, the first story, I so saw was him writing a 40s Siegel and Schuster Superman story. And then it morphs. And then the halfway I mean, through, it turns into a Morrison story. And, and it it becomes Silver Age wackiness. Yeah, and it didn't fit right because it changed from what he set out yeah, to do.
1: Yeah, tonally at least All-Star Superman is wearing its influence on its sleeve. It's yeah. a, an unabashed homage to the silver and the golden age. And edge. it is one of the it, I think personally it's one of the best Superman stories. I think it's one of the best Morrison stories. <laughs> I, I like All-Star Superman a great deal. You would because it's linear. Well, well, there is that. But, you know, no, I, 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 <laughs> like, I don't mind them not being linear. I like them to make sense. That's all I require. I don't even mind if they leave me to do a lot of the work, mm. but I like them to at least be able to go. Ah, yes, that, that I get. Mm, yes,
0: ah. They were talking about um, All-Star Superman, the Frank Whitley documentary. Oh, all right, was um, it good? That it, it was actually. Um, he sometimes he sleeps in his workplace, and so instead of working. Yeah, is it's, that why everything's late? Booyah! He, he has said he does try to stay a few months ahead of the deadline, but because it's him, that never happens. Yeah, but okay. he's measured out all the different volumes of Akira, and so he has like I think it's volumes three and six that are a certain height that, when put together, that's a pillow for him to sleep on. <laughs> okay. And they were showing original pencils now. A lot he's. A very detailed, he's putting a lot of into it, but when it's something like um, All-Star Superman, it's just... Well, I think we've said when we've covered an issue, that.
1: Like, I want to see that without the colouring, because yeah. I think 90% of the work in All-Star Superman, the reason that book looks so good yeah. is due to the colouring, I think. Mm. But, I mean, of the work quickly's done, I like All-Star Superman the best, even though his cape was far too short. Yeah. Our next email is from Damien General mm-hmm. We like Damien. Damien's the reason we did Transformers episode.
0: Yes, so we hope you liked it. Yeah, can't kind of suck if you didn't it. <laughs> Thanks for the Transformers episode, yeah. guys, but it wasn't all, But one it one. wasn't that good and I wish you hadn't bothered. <laughs> you actually picked
1: my least favourite story. <laughs> oh, sorry, Damien. We do apologise. Um, the email says guilt. Not appropriate. Yeah. See, I plan this stuff. Happy no longer New Year. My God, when's this one? Oh, it's 9th of February, so it's not that long ago. Two quick notes. One, an apology. Just listening to Happy Birthday, Dear Joker, Part 2, and you mentioned someone splurging a load of Transformers (laughs) Transformers comics at you, which I think was me. Sorry, I was just excited to hear you cover them. Well, we are, and we have, so I hope you enjoyed them. My other quick note is about Daredevil. Other than a few asides criticising, criticising Bendis' run, I don't recall you spending much time on him and wondered if you would be. Well, mm. <laughs> you plan these emails. I meals? plan this. See? See? Yeah. The fundamental interconnectedness. Of all things. This doesn't mean you haven't and won't correct me, it's just my Civ-like memory hasn't retained it. I just read the first year or so of Wade's hugely fun run at the same time as reading half of Miller's run and hope you might squeeze him in sometime before the young'un spreads his wings. Just not before Transformers. Well, it won't be before Transformers because <laughs> Transformers is done. Finally, love your synopsis of the issues you cover each week. It's the next best thing to reading them. Uh, well, Damien, it's funny you should mention Daredevil. It is, yeah. This episode... Is about Batman. Is about Batman. (laughs) Yes. Is a part one of a two-part story. Two-part story. story. Two-part episode, issue story, whatever. Issue um, On Daredevil. So we hope that you enjoy this and don't think that we've wasted your time doing (laughs) this one either. Finally, a quick question if I may. Which two big Omnibu are you planning to buy this year? I'm wondering how many I can sneak by the wife. (laughs) good luck sneaking them by anybody. (laughs) Um, I've not really got any plans to buy any of the announced omnibuses. I'm waiting for Fantastic Four 3 and um, Spider-Man 3. Doom Patrol. That the one you want? Yeah.
0: I oh, you wanted... Um, the, oh, you've got the Invisibles, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, okay, sorry. Wouldn't What's mind uh, 1 million as well. 1 million, that was the one and I was thinking of. That's further down my list. Is it? And I don't know if if I would buy Animal Man again to get it all together. What? Is, is, is Animal Man that we've got the three trade paperbacks for, though? Yeah. Why would you buy them again? Because they're all together. Yeah. I like having things. You're going. such a I'm, man. And planetary as well. That looks nice in a big omnibus. Yeah. Yeah. Great.
1: Uh, our next email is from Patrick Kokorin. It just says Joker show. Hello from Metro Detroit, land of winter horrors and eternal snowfall. If <laughs> winter fell. <laughs> Love the Joker profile show. Can I make a request you please pick a character at random and highlight some of the pivotal or your personal favourite storylines? It's a very cool format that gives you a nice slice and sample of a character bio. We have thought about that. Mm-hmm. We have thought about just doing the, the Joker one. I wouldn't do five episodes on it. Yeah. But I have thought about doing a villains kind of thing with that best, three best villains Doctor three best Doctor Octopus, three best Green Goblin, three best Weather Wizard, that kind of thing. Yeah. Captain Cold. Well, that kind of thing. I have thought about doing that. Um... Now, the complete antithesis of what I just suggested. Can you guys give capes a break? I miss your vertigo jaunts. How about some image jaunts? You guys reading Saga, Bedlam, Unwritten, Manhattan Projects, Zero? Love the show. Patrick Corcoran. Well. I, I remember our Vertigo Ones being less popular. Yeah, at the time that we did them, the Vertigo Shows weren't terribly popular with the downloaded figured audience. Um, we they were,
0: have since gone up. We had only one of our three listeners who yes. enjoyed <laughs> the we Vertigo did. Ones. We
1: did, yes. The, of the 15 that we now have, <laughs> yeah. four of them enjoyed them. <laughs> no, I don't mind. I like doing the Vertigo Ones. Yeah. I think it stretches us in uh, different directions. We've not got any Vertigo On the docket at the minute, he said, looking at the boot. But we do have Rock World, which is Vertigo-esque. That's coming up. I have certainly given some thought to covering Velvet
0: Mm. from Image, which I think is fantastic. How would we do something like Saga, the first six issues?
1: No, well, with Saga we thought about doing a character spotlight, creator spotlight, sorry, on Brian K. Vaughan, haven't we? Yeah. So an issue of Saga, an issue of... Why the Last Man an issue of Buffet or
0: something else that he oh, wrote. The last issue of Day of Sex. Oh, that, yeah. Where it's about him pitching Why the Last Man. Is it? Yeah. Well, that sounds a bit masturbatory. Uh, he, he, I guess.
1: Okay. All right, fair enough. So, so we do have some stuff coming up that isn't, and uh, also planned, I mean, I don't know if, when we get round to it, but also planned is that 70s show, mm. which at the moment is scheduled for up to five shows, <laughs> but we may whittle that down a bit, um, of the 70s. But we would primarily not be looking at the superhero stuff, wouldn't we? Yeah. There's a couple of superhero stuff we want to look at. Like, you definitely have to do Giant Size X-Men mm. if you were looking at that era. And there's one or two, although maybe the first appearance of the Punisher mm. would have to be looked at as a, a, a definite epoch-making moment of the 70s. But other than that, we were the list that we've got is not primarily superheroes. Yeah. Because the 70s were such a diverse era. Of comic books that we we, we felt... And we felt we covered nothing but superheroes looking at the Silver Edge. Yeah. So if we do get to do the 70s, it wouldn't primarily be superheroes.
0: You know, speaking of Manhattan Projects... Yes. You know who recently uh, had a cameo in there? Who? Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. Did they? Yeah. Right. Hostess Joker is our next email. It's from Ben Hagstrom. Hello, Ben.
1: Hello, hey kids hosts. That would be us. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of months now. I haven't listened to all of them because I only started listening two months ago. If you'd listened solidly, Ben, with <laughs> no sleep, no rests for food, and not bothering going to work, you'd have got through them all. Yeah. I'm just saying I doubt your commitment to Sparkle <laughs> Motion. That's all I'm saying.
0: Hey, could we be, instead of Hey Kids Hosts, could we be hey, St- hey Kids Hosties? If somebody wants to send us some Hosties <laughs> Twinkies, that would be awesome. You want some Twinkies. I do, yeah. Uh, or ho host, or Ding Dongs.
1: <laughs> Uh, I had, uh, Where was I in Ben's email? Yes, I do enjoy what I've heard quite a bit. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate that. I was listening to your latest Joker episode when you were joking about Joker's hostess ads when I came across a real one in an issue of World's Finest I plan on covering on my blog. And in true Hey Kids fashion, <laughs> Ben has plugged his blog in his email. Mm-hmm. We heartily approve of this stealth pluggage. <laughs> I approve wholeheartedly. And it's at perfectmaps.blogspot.com. I can plug as shamelessly as anybody, says Ben. Well, fair play to you. And both of your imaginations aren't too far off. I thought you would get a chuckle out of it. Just don't laugh too hard. Or the Joker has done his job. Later, Ben Hagstrom. And he did include as a link the Joker's Hostess Fruit Pies ad. And you can tell that the Joker is evil. He doesn't like Hostess Fruit Pies. (laughs) That's how you know that he's a bad man. Our next email. Some say he thinks that the Spider-Man clone saga is the finest piece of gla- graphic literature ever committed to printed page. And that, the image age of comics, is by far the greatest comic book age ever. All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. And this email, Batman, you sing so bad I can smell you from here. <laughs> pew, 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 Joker parts one and two. I do like his subject headings. Very funny. Uh, My venom-induced grinning friends. My introduction to the Joker came from watching reruns of the 66 Batman on WPIX Channel 11. Cesar Romero's Joker was my brother's favourite villain on the show. I distinctly remember him running to his room to grab his superpowers Joker toy every time that Joker was on the show. That superpowers Joker similarly informed me on the character. I almost always picture the character wielding a giant green hammer for that very reason. I don't remember the Joker from Super Friends much, but the combination of Romero and the superpowers toy formed my earliest memory of the
0: character. I do like how the new action figures for the 66 show has the moustache on it. Mm. Attention to detail, though. It's yeah. absolutely quite awesome. Mm-hmm. And I
1: was very impressed with
0: that. Of course, being born in 1980,
1: the Jack Nicholson Joker made an impact on me as a young man. I liked the over-the-top elements of the character, which connected me back to the original, read Romero, Joker. But it was clear to even my nine-year-old brain that this was a more serious take on the character. Character. The thematic elements of the Joker as an artist went right over my head at the time, but I really enjoy them now. But of course, the Joker for me remains Mark Hamill on Batman the Animated Series. As this series essentially shaped my feelings about the real DC Universe. The animated Joker quickly established himself as what the Joker should be. The quick wit, the deranged mind, the penchant for violence, and the overall lunacy made him a strong impression. I've never considered myself a Joker fan, but he is one of those characters who, like the Batman himself, everyone seems to like on some level. In a modern context, no one really actively dislikes the Joker. Andy, you made mention in part one that the Joker typically doesn't carry a weapon besides his acid squirting rose or maybe a knife. One item I would add to this, the stainless steel playing card from the animated series. Besides the great use of the obvious gag, I've always got an ace up my sleeve, the use of the steel card allowed Warners to skirt Fox's broadcasting standards and practices. He couldn't use a knife, but the playing card was alright, so it became sort of a signature weapon for the clown prince of crime. I wish it would show up in live action. Honestly. I really like the selection of stories you guys picked to talk about the Joker in these episodes. The Laughing Fish, of course, is one of those stories which had such a great hook that it makes you smile every time. Colonel Watts' name has chickens and they don't even have mustaches. Always cracks me up. The Joker's Five-Way Revenge is another one which is always touted as the definitive Joker story, which makes me all the more sad that I've not read it. I also liked hearing about the introduction of the post-crisis Joker. I know I really think about the post-crisis. Batman has been all that different from the pre-crisis one, so this was a nice touch. As an aside, the animated version of The Joker Fish is a personal favourite episode of mine, just because it's such a nice adaptation. I also really like that it has no title card. The first run of the animated series had, almost without fail, a static title card. The Laughing Fish starts in media res, as it were, with no title. This always made it stand out from other episodes when you were watching several at a time. Thanks for the good show, fellas, Luke. You're very welcome, Luke. P.S. This charming man has outro music, you cheeky devil. Very clever. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad somebody appreciated the thought and effort that went into the outro music. I did put a lot of effort into that. What would the joker listen to?
0: Yeah, we, we did sit there for a while. Let's
1: let's have this the Pretty Reckless song. I like that. And you were like, oh, I don't. Well, I do, and I'm editing it. So, <laughs> tough. Uh, we're going to knock it on the head with emails, though. We still have plenty to come up. But that doesn't mean we don't want you to email in. Please feel free to drop us a line about, well, anything, really. Mm. We're not even fussy about it being something we've talked about on the show anymore, are we? We're just happy to have you join in. We'll be right back after this commercial break. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see it's it's my Daredevil well, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a Billy Club hat. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is DaredevilPodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? On February 4th, 1964, Marvel Comics launched yet another superhero title. Nowadays, this is nothing new, but back then this new character was following hot on the heels of a spate of creativity that had seen the launch of classic characters such as Fantastic Four, The Amazing Spider-Man, Iron Man, Thor, X-Men, Sgt. Fury, The Avengers, and not-so-classics like Giant Man. This new title also boasted a fine pedigree. The cover stated that this was in the tradition of Spider-Man. The Fantastic Four made a floaty-headed guest shot. We were being asked to guess, with very few clues, how the protagonist differed from other heroes. It's fair to say that Marvel had a lot riding on Daredevil, the man without fear. Therefore it's sad to report that the opening issues of D.D.'s own comic just aren't really that good. The origin issue, in which young Matthew Murdoch is blinded by a bizarre radioactive liquid that otherwise heightens his remaining senses, as well as giving him a radar sense to compensate for his blindness, is competent enough. It's highly derivative of the pulps, or with its themes of boxers throwing fights, gangsters, low-level crime and working-class people, but that only adds to its gritty feel. The art by Submariner creator Bill Everett, with assists from Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, adds to this glorious noir feeling, and when read in the black-and-white essentials, the drama and general crime noir feel of the strip ooze off the page. Sadly, Lee never had the kind of A-list plotter and artistic collaborators on Daredevil that he did on The Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, and the book swiftly became a mishmash of general Lee themes. The dual identity causing hijinks, the conflicted main character full of doubt and self-awareness, and the love triangle between the three central characters. Even the early villains didn't hold much promise, with Lee nicking Spider-Man villain Electro for the second issue, as if the parallels with Spider were not obvious enough. We covered the first six issues of Daredevil when we looked at Daredevil Yellow, so there doesn't seem any need to recover them here. But suffice to say, Daredevil was not off to a great start. However, there are kernels of greatness in these early strips. The central idea of a crime noir superhero is a great one, and it fits this character perfectly, as it did Spider-Man, and in some of the early strips back in the 30s, Superman. The costume, as of issue 7, changed to the Red Devil outfit we are familiar with today, and it's a great look, one of the most distinctive in comics, and for my money, up though with the Flash's costume for being so magnificent in its simplicity. The central character being blind and using his other senses to compensate, super enhanced though they may be, is a great one, as is the idea that Daredevil doesn't actually have any super strength or subhuman abilities. He's simply a well-trained and self-taught acrobat and fighter. The fact that Matt has pulled him himself up and made a name for himself as a lawyer is also an excellent conceit, bringing Matt and, by definition, Daredevil into contact with criminals due to the cases he takes. This not only provided Matt with internal conflict, but also gave us the whole "justice is blind subtext, as well as the wonderful dichotomy of a lawyer who is also a vigilante. Over the course of the first few years of publication, Daredevil would be given his own rogues gallery, some of whom I think are massively underrated, and if handled properly, could be on a par with Spider-Man, The Flash, or Batman's adversaries. Issue 3 saw the debut of The Owl, Issue 8, The Stiltman, and Gladiator and the Purple Man. Villains ported over from Spider-Man would include the aforementioned Electro, as well as the Beetle, who seems to be one of the earliest plug-and-play villains to steal a turn from Luke Giaconetti. Not all of these creations would be gems, Step Up, leapfrog, but when Gene Colan came aboard as regular artist with issue 20 the strip managed to establish its own visual identity, distinctly different from Ditko's Spider-Man and Kirby's FF. Colan's art, all highlights heavy shadows and stylized chiaroscuro, is magnificent to behold, and is again much better when read in the essential volumes. Daredevil has also felt the influence of one creator, Frank Miller, to the point where DD's history is divided into two parts, before Miller and after Miller. I have to confess, I love... Daredevil. To me, he never was a B-list character. He just kind of existed off on his own somewhere, doing his own thing, and this is probably what drew me to him. I've never been a big team player, and as such, I wasn't someone who liked team books. I loved the FF, but they weren't a team, they were a family. I liked Team Titans, but again, these were friends and allies who came together to fight either. I preferred solo heroes, Spider-Man and the Hulk, people like me who didn't play well with others, and Daredevil fell into this category. He also had no larger agenda. He was wasn't standing for truth and justice in any overt manner. He didn't moon constantly over his dead father. Even though heavy layers of guilt would be layered onto the character in subsequent years, there was no mission statement per se, no with great power moment. And this highlighted the problems of the strip. It lacked direction. I came to Durdell through two routes. The first was a Marvel UK Weekly entitled Marvel Comic. Original, I know. The issue I remember was a reprint of Daredevil issue forty three in combat with Captain America and featured the same excellent Jack Kirby cover of DD Dee Dee and Cap going at it in a boxing ring. I also had a copy of the Mighty World of Marvel UK annual from nineteen seventy-nine, which was all Daredevil. It featured the name of the game is Death from DD Dee Dee Annual Issue Four, and Death Times Two from DD Dee Dee Issue One Hundred and Forty. If my younger self registered any confusion at death being both a name and a mathematical equation, I don't recall. I devoured further issues of Marvel Comic, and then leapt over to The Superheroes, which was publishing the Miller material. As with all Marvel UK reprints, this being able to mix and match your eras may have led to some confusion, but as a kid, I didn't care. I just love to read comics. Michael, do you have any memories of Daredevil at all?
0: Not really. Excellent. Well, it's always been there. I, I, I've, I've read plenty of Daredevil stories, but none of them were all that memorable, the, the, except for really um, Dirt on the Yellow and the Frank Miller one. Well, but that's pretty much all you read, isn't it? Yeah. So,
1: did, did you never read the Bendis stuff? No. You know I've been reading about
0: Wade? Well, I stopped and I keep meaning to go back to it now well, that well, it's finished. You may as well now, we've got all 36 issues. Yeah. Because you'll blitz through it. It's it's a
1: good read, it's not a
0: particularly meaty one. I don't remember him being in the 90s Spider-Man cartoon as well. Yes, as a humongous stiff, <laughs> wasn't he? Well, so is everyone in well, the cartoon. Yeah, that's true, Everyone's a bit. everyone's got to rod up their ass in that <laughs> series
1: really, haven't they? So, this two-part series celebrating 50 years of Daredevil has been long gestating. J. David Weeder does an excellent podcast devoted to Daredevil, so we held off for a bit before doing this so as not to tread on his toes. It was originally penciled in the boot as we came straight back after Christmas. Yeah. But we held it back a little bit. And also to decide just how I wanted to approach it. Looking through the Daredevil publishing history, it struck me that in between the end of Daredevil Volume 1 in 1998 and the launch of Daredevil Volume 3 in 2011, there were no single issue stories. Not one. For this series, I wanted to cover single issues from DD's history, so this meant all the stories we've picked are from the first volume. This also meant that some multi-part stories fell by the wayside, including the excellent Doctor Doom story from issue 37 and 38, one of the best Doom stories ever. Other early day possibilities include issue 7's magnificent issue-length battle with the Submariner, annual number 1, the Emissaries of Evil, ultimately rejected due to it simply being a rehash of Amazing Spider-Man annual number 1, or one of his early clashes with Spider-Man from issue 16 or issue 17. Ultimately, though, no coverage of the early days of Daredevil would be complete without mentioning one of the most ridiculous, yet simultaneously one of the most fondly remembered subplots in comics history. I am, of course, talking about that madcap, swinging 60s hep cat, Mike Murdoch. See, when Spider-Man sent a letter to the Nelson Murdoch attorney at law offices revealing that he'd figured out that Matt Murdoch and Daredevil were one and the same, said letter wound up in the hands of Matt's long-time buddy and law partner, Franklin Foggy Nelson, and their secretary, Karen Page, who... Obviously, both Foggy and Matt had an unrequited crush on, because this was a Stan Lee comic in the 60s. This led to Matt having to cover his ass. He did this by declaring that Daredevil was, in actuality, not Matt Murdock, but his heretofore never-mentioned twin brother, Mike. Matt then invented a whole new persona, a wild and crazy, flashily-dressed guy with a motor mouth and a snappy 60s comeback for all occasions. But all good things, and not-so-good things, must come to an end, and in issue 41, cover dated June 1968, we saw the publication of a story by Stan Lee and Gene Colan, get the essential, entitled The Death of Mike Murdoch. The cover, by Colan, has a ghostly daredevil, arms outstretched, palms open to the reader, pleading as people go about their daily life below. It's a pleasing cover without giving anything away, although the theatre behind Dee Dee is playing Hamlet, so some tragedy will no doubt lie within. What do you think of that
0: cover, Michael? It's good. (laughs) I love it when you have a ton to say. It, it, It reminds me of something I can't figure out just what. Oh yeah, those Batman covers were, there's a castle and Batman's all ghostly looking down on it.
1: Oh yeah, the, oh God... I know the name of it, it's a Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams one, it's completely gone out of my head. Something Mansion.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know
1: the one you mean. It'll come back to me halfway through the show, (laughs) I would imagine. It's what normally happens. Daredevil has been fighting the Unholy Three, but the team's ringleader, the Exterminator, has trapped Dee Dee and Foggy's glamorous girlfriend, Deborah Harris, in a deadly time warp. Both are now slightly out of sync with regular time, being able to see people living their lives, but unable to interact or touch them. Foggy decides to lure the Unholy Three out by pretending he knows who the Exterminator is, whilst Karen Page tries to track down Matt, who she has finally realised she loves. As Foggy's ruse works and he is kidnapped, Karen heads to Matt's brownstone where she blunders in and discovers Daredevil's costumes lying around on the bed. <laughs> Meanwhile, Daredevil manages to use his radar sense to pull himself free of the Exterminator's T-Ray, but is still slightly out of time. With his billy club, DD manages to latch onto a passing car, and the sudden shock pulls DD back into the correct time continuum. However, his costume is all tatters, so he returns home, where he encounters Karen, and thus has to pretend to be Mike. In conversation, though, Karen reveals Foggy's reckless plan, and Dee Dee uses his radar sense to zero in on the Exterminator's T-Ray. Locating the machine means locating Foggy, which DD does, and during his battle with with the unholy free, the Exterminator's time vortex machine is set ablaze. Making one final desperate lunge, D.D. pulls at the lever, supporting the time displacement equipment, causing it to blow up real good. As the rubble rains down, Foggy discovers the tattered remains of D.D.'s Dee costume and concludes that Mike Murdoch, aka Daredevil, must be dead. With the machine destroyed, Deborah Harris reverts to a normal timeline, and Karen wonders if this means the end of Daredevil. Matt. Wonders the same thing. What did you think of this one? Because I haven't got page by page notes on this one.
0: Yeah, uh, I enjoyed it. Did you really? I, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. All the timey wimey stuff and all the wibbly wobbly timey wimey time the car travel. to pull him out of it, which I, I really liked because he, he said something like, Oh, I hope the car doesn't change speed. And I'm on the edge of my seat going, What if there's a red light? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> like half of him stuck in real time, and the, right? the other half sliding like, well, behind. Uh, oh no, that would have been terrible. Yeah. Although I did think that there was way too much build-up and it just ended really quickly. It's a Stan Lee comic from the 60s. Yeah. He frequently had trouble
1: with his pacing. Mm. Frequently stories would just end because, because it's page 22. <laughs> yeah. And we need to be the end of the story. So this suffered from that. Essentially, even though it's a three-part story, mm. and this is part three, that is a valid complaint. It does just gets to the end and stops. And despite being called to the death of Mike Murdoch, Mike
0: Murdoch's not in this. I was disappointed about that. Is he? All I hear is complaints about Mike Murdoch and he's not even in this issue which is about his death. Yeah, I I thought that was really bad
1: planning. Yeah. That Mike's not even in in the issue. It moves along briskly, I thought, but I, I thought it was a bit aimless to be honest with you. It's a prime example of what I was talking about when I said Dirt Ever Lacked Direction. Mm. it bounces all over the place from standard superhero melodrama Karen and Matt, Foggy and Deborah, to standard superhero action Daredevil vs the Holy Three and then sci-fi action with the introduction of the time displacement equipment It's three different genres in one which can work you know, Spider-Man manages to mix crime drama with soap opera melodramatics, Fantastic Four blends character with science fiction and Sgt Fury takes the war comic and blends it with Marvel mem- melodrama and action, but Daredevil to me, like Spider-Man, isn't a hero that needs a sci-fi angle. The minute a writer introduces sci-fi to Spider-Man and Daredevil, I normally check out. Mm. With the caveat, I know that essentially they're science fiction heroes. Their origins are science fiction based. Yeah. But beyond that, I kind of think that they're fighting muggers and superheroic villains, superheroic supervillains rather than superheroes. Witness then, the first half of this issue where Stan throws out so much time travel techno babble. It didn't make a lot of sense.
0: No, but... Did it? D- does it have to?
1: Um, it did make me wonder if I was reading Daredevil or an old Lee Dick Tales of Suspense. Yeah. To be honest with you. Uh, Dee Dee's plan to kill off Mike also made little sense because it kills off Daredevil as well.
0: Yeah, when I got to the end of that, I was oh, like, Oh, carry on? Yeah, but is this the end? Yeah. What, what, what goes on there? How, how did he explain his identity once Daredevil comes back and Mike doesn't? Oh, they just forgot about it. They just went, oh, right, so you weren't Daredevil, Mike was, but now Mike's dead. <laughs> yeah. So who's Daredevil then? Oh, it must be some other guy. So how did Mike die then? <laughs> if Mike did die, what was he doing in your
1: costume? Yeah, it it raises more questions than it answers, Yeah, doesn't it, in many ways. I picked this because I thought Mike Murdoch was in it more. And I thought you'd get a kick out of my bird app. I really did. But also, just to show how the early days of Daredevil just didn't have the focus of the other Marvel books of the time. It isn't in any way bad. Yeah. It's actually perfectly enjoyable. Uh, A typical example of swinging 60s Marvel with magnificent artwork, especially in in the essential. Hmm. Some of these essentials have suffered from bad reproduction, but not this one. Gene Colan's art in this, which is essential, Daredevil Volume 2, looks absolutely gorgeous. It's fantastic. doesn't have any of the characterisation or identifiability of other Marvel comics of the time. But I think what's really wrong with it is that with a minimal amount of rewriting, this could have been an Iron Man story or a Giant Man story. There's nothing inherent to it that makes it a Daredevil story, really. Yeah, there?
0: the only things that I do are the bits where Daredevil isn't even in it.
1: Well, even then, the love triangle stuff's just ported over from Hulk and yeah. Iron Man and, to a lesser extent, Spider-Man. Although Spider-Man didn't really do it till he introduced Ned Leeds. Yeah. But, you know, it, he was doing that in all of them. There was Reed, Submariner and Sue. Yeah. There was always some kind of love triangle leading from St- Stan's own life where he nicked his wife from somebody else. Mm. so he's obviously fascinated by that aspect of it it wasn't awful by any stretch of the imagination I mean I'm I'm very surprised and and happy you enjoyed it that was quite a surprise to him
0: I found it funny that the the Deborah Harris is in it Debbie Harris yeah (laughs)
1: dreaming dreaming is free Far more interesting to me, however, was Daredevil issue 47, cover dated December 1968. The trade's dress has changed slowly over the last few issues, losing the Here Comes from above Daredevil with issue 43 and gaining a new logo with issue 44 and finally losing the Man Without Fear subtitle with issue 45. None of these changes must have gained long-term approval, as the original logo was back in place for issue 48. This cover by Gene Colan is Daredevil fighting a collection of thugs in the cramped environs of an apartment stair case. Really, really excellent cover, but it looks exceptionally muddy in Essential Volume 2, going back to what I said about some of the reproductions quite appalling. The actual story isn't, but just for some reason, that cover looks like a bad photostat, doesn't it? Mm. It doesn't look like they had the original artwork for that cover, so it does look like a photocopy of a colour cover, and therefore doesn't work. Yeah. It just looks (laughs) there. Brother Take My Hand was produced by Stanley and Gene Colin with inks by George Klein and letters by Art Simek. A few months ago, Daredevil, following in the footsteps of musicians and actors, headed to North Vietnam to give the GIs a daring acrobatic display. One member of the audience, Willie Lincoln, recently wounded by a grenade attack on his platoon, takes his position at the front of the stage. Willie's sight is fading due to the explosion, so this may be his only chance to see his hero in the flesh. Dee Dee gives the troops a show, but towards the end of the act, Willie stumbles forward as his sight fades forever. Willie is confined to a hospital bed and Dee Dee takes a visit with the man who he has more in common with than he knows. Willie tells Dee Dee his tale. The grenade was meant for his entire platoon, but Willie, in an act of supreme bravery, threw himself forward and managed to pitch the grenade away just as it exploded before his face. Dee Dee consoles him that he managed to save his men but Willie laments that he must now return to civilian life and who knows what that may tell he tells Dee Dee he can't return to his old job as a cop even if he were sighted Daredevil gives him the name of a lawyer who may be able to help when he returns home Matthew Murdoch a few months later, Willie returns to civilian life with a cloud over his head. Willie was dismissed from the force for taking a bribe from Biggie Benton, a local mob boss, but the whole thing was a frame. Willie is pointed in the direction of Matt Murdoch and the case goes to trial. Murdoch tears Benton and his cronies apart in the courtroom and exonerates Willie. Of course, Benton's goons take this about as well as teenagers take to waking up early and send men after Willie. Matt is forced to fight back and in the darkness the men believe him to be Willie. When Willie seeing I-Dog joins the fray, Matt switches to Daredevil, With the goons taken out, Dee Dee convinces Willie to say it was he who initially fought them off before Daredevil arrived, so as to ensure his safety, and points Willie in the direction of a job. Willie, emboldened by Matt's achievements despite his disability, vows to tackle life's challenges head on. The early pages of the story are set in North Vietnam. Marvel once again showing why they were way ahead of the curve in the early 1960s. These stories acknowledge world events and even make the heroes a part of them, which is why Marvel gained the reputation they did of tackling social issues. Sometimes they may have been a little heavy handed, but you know, at least they were trying. Sure, that counts for something. Stan was also very bright. Whilst he was a product of World War II and Vietnam was no World War II, he doesn't take a side on the complex issues around the Vietnam War, realising that this issue was probably too much for the morally black and white confines of a superhero comic. He acknowledges that it's going on, then takes the stance that, irrespective of the conflict or the reasons for it, there are men and women paying a price. Colan's art's magnificent, in the opening shot, absolutely loved it.
0: I, when when I opened it and saw that I was like, oh right, they're going to do a Vietnam story. Where Daredevil learns some morals that teach the readers about it, and then there's a there's, a, there's a caption that says, "Relax, uh, reader, this is not a Vietnam story."
1: <laughs> yeah, it does say that. Yeah, we're not tossing a war story yeah. out so don't worry about it.
0: So did that make you think, oh okay? Yeah, I wouldn't have minded it, but I was like, oh, there's going to be morals and everyone's going to learn a lesson. Oh, that didn't happen.
1: No. Well, technically, somebody but did it. learn a lesson. Willie Lincoln learned something over the course of the story. You know, it's his story. Willie's instantly likable as well from the minute that we meet him. All credit to Stan for having him speak in a relatively normal way. There's no swinging 60 slang yeah. or offbeat phrases. He doesn't speak like Mike Murdoch with all his hep jargon, or what Stan thought (laughs) was hep teenage jargon at the time that he was writing this. Daredevil, after he does his little acrobatic show and Willie loses his sight, goes on and has a chat with Willie in the hospital room. Stan doesn't get a lot of credit for when his conversation is incredibly well scripted. Mm. But here it is. It's not maudlin' or saccharine. It's realistic and hard felt. It's heartfelt, sorry, not hard felt. I've got no idea how much Gene Colen was contributing to this strip. He doesn't seem to get the same level of fan adoration that Kirby and Ditko get. But the, I thought this was incredibly well plotted. It's a very tightly plotted issue. You can argue that the ending is a little bit rushed again. Yeah. But for the most part, I thought this was top notch. Mm. I thought the writing in this was really strong. The scene where Willie makes it back to civilian is effective, but it does contain an illogicality. Right. DD sets up Willie contacting Matt. He yeah. actually gives him Mike, 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 Mike Murdoch, Matt Murdoch's name, doesn't he? Yeah. Tells him, contact Matt when you get back to New York. He'll probably be able to help you with something. He'll be able to help you out. So there's no real reason for the scene where Karen Page gives Willie Matt's contact info.
0: Yeah, well, what I thought was a bit um contradictory was where he shows up at Matt Murdoch's place and Matt says, Ah, Willie, what a small world, but I listened to him anyway. It's not a small world at all, you told him to go to you. Yeah, yeah, that's true,
1: yeah, he did he actually told him to go to Matt Murdoch, didn't he? Yeah. So that's another one. It I think it this would have played much better if Willie had remembered Matt from his conversation with Daredevil and just gone and seen him. Yeah. There was no need to involve Karen or indeed have that line of dialogue. Mm. Just go, Ah, oh, yeah, I re- Daredevil's mentioned you. Yeah. I remember,
0: yeah, come in and have
1: a seat, that kind of thing.
0: Well, maybe a lot of time has passed and you just forgot we all forget things. It's
1: possible he's had other things on his mind. I mean, I think the Karen Page scenes, though, just to have that little added extra that Willie's met Karen, who's now not working for Melson and Murder, and Matt doesn't know it. Yeah. Irony! <laughs> Stan was fond of that, wasn't he? He's was fond of his irony. The courtroom scenes in this were great. Yeah. I absolutely loved them. M- Daredevil's courtroom drama, which was one of the best things about Daredevil, is what it should always have been, Matt in the courtroom. Jude have on the streets. Two separate story strands that complement each other.
0: Loved it. I loved all the I all the, of that. The bit where he tricks the guy on the stand. Oh, the fo- the fog thing. Yeah, because I'm sad. Though, can you go going? Can you really do this to someone on the stand? Can you really trick them? Yeah. Why not?
1: Okay, yeah. He's asked him a perfect, legitimate question there. He's asked him a question, how could you see that, <laughs> thought, given that it was a foggy night? He's asked if he him wasn't a false lying, Yeah, but if he wasn't lying, he would have said it wasn't foggy that night. Yeah. And Matt would have just backpedaled and said, oh, my mistake. Yeah. That's all he would have done, wouldn't he? Whereas here, he trips him up over it. Yeah. So, you know, fair enough. I don't mind that. I don't know if it's a sneaky lawyer trick but it was do, do they teach
0: missing law school they say <laughs> you do lawyer school
1: no they teach you um, what's it called it's called something where you put aside the fact that you may be defending an utter scumbag yeah. because he deserves the same right to a defence as anyone else mm. they do teach you how to do that apparently right. how to be able to compartmentalise Yeah. and all that stuff Uh, The fight in Willie's apartment is likewise magnificent. It was still rare at this point in comics to have a hero go into action without the costume. So the fact that Matt Murdock is engaged in this multi-page fight in the darkness has that wonderful little element going for it that he's doing this as Matt. And having it in darkness is obviously a nod to the fact that everything Matt does is in darkness. Yeah. So I thought that was really clever as well. With some minor reworking... This could still work as an episode of the new Netflix series that's coming up. Yeah. They could pretty much take this story and do it as a done-in-one episode, can't they? Mm. I mean, I don't know what approach they're going to take. Probably they're going to skip all of this and go straight to Miller. Yeah. Because that seems to be the standard approach we do at Evel, doesn't it? Forget the first 12 or so years of his existence.
0: What I thought was strange about this fight, though, was he says, if he stays in the darkness, the goons will just think he's willing, Yeah. But he's talking out loud to them. Yeah, he should have. He should have kept his mouth shut. Yeah, because clearly that's not him. But they don't know that. And I then, suppose. and then, Daredevil sh- just shows up. And then, wh- wh- where's Willie gone? Yeah, arguably, this didn't need Daredevil to appear at the end of it. Yeah, I think you could. He only showed up. Is it's his own comic? Well, it's really. only showed up because
1: of the time that it was written. If this was written nowadays, it's exactly the same plot. Daredevil wouldn't have shown up at the end of this. Matt would have done all of this and then got Willie out and said right, you need to tell them that you did this Yeah. otherwise they won't leave you alone. If they think you can look after yourself they'll back off. Yeah. It's like the bully thing and it punch him in the nose and he'll never bother you until you're walking home on your own and he's your six <laughs> of his mates. But yeah, if this was written now Daredevil wouldn't be in it and arguably Daredevil doesn't need to be in it. Mm. It would have worked much better if it had just been Matt. But... I actually thought this was quite simply one of the finest and most underrated stories of the Marvel Silver Edge. Mm. I thought this was fantastic. It's a deceptively simple story. It works on many levels, and it does so effortlessly. It's criminal that this isn't held in as high regard as Amazing Spider-Man issue 33 and FF issue 51. Firstly, Stan does his patriotic duty, pointing out that even if the war may be unpopular, there are still men and women giving their lives overseas, and in Willie's case, giving something that will seriously alter how he lives that life. That he gave his sight, saving his platoon, only makes him more relatable. Bravely, Stan never tries to make Willie out to be a hero. Willie doesn't consider what he did a heroic gesture or even something special. He simply did what had to be done. When he returns to civilian life, we learn he was framed for taking a bribe. And we get that magnificent extended scene in the middle where Matt Murdock does what he does best. Fights for the underdog, but in a court of law. Often, Stan seemed to forget that the lawyer aspect of the strip was one of the most unique things about it. But here it's integral to the plot. Finally, we're treated to Matt breaking heads without changing to Daredevil, a magnificent set piece set completely in the dark. Finally, Daredevil does make a final appearance, and Willie, realising if Matt can make something of his life, so can he, is left with a bright future ahead of him. And the single most impressive thing that Stan Lee does in this story, in the midst of civil unrest and the civil rights movement, Stan never once mentions that Willie Lincoln is black. What did you think of that one?
0: I enjoyed it. It wasn't my favourite. What, before we're doing tonight, or ever? Well, ever, really. (laughs) I loved it!
1: I think that can go toe-to-toe with Amazing Spider-Man 33 and FF51. Yeah. I think it's a severely underrated Silver Age Daredevil story. I think it, I thought it was an absolute blinder. Loved well, it. we're blind up there. No! Do you know I did not intend <laughs> that? Going back to us, you know, thoroughly planning everything that we do in this show, which is
0: blatantly untrue. Oh, yeah. You know, we are covering my favourite Daredevil story. Just, just not, not this week. Just not this week. Yeah.
1: Bullseye is one of Daredevil's greatest and most well-known foes. In many ways, Daredevil's arch-villain. So it's a surprise to learn that Bullseye didn't appear in Daredevil until issue 131 in 1976. A master assassin, Bullseye never misses, allegedly. His work also allows him to indulge in his homicidal tendencies, but his confrontations with Daredevil, one of which had Bullseye hired to kill Matt Murdock, have normally resulted in failure. Bullseye considers this a serious blow to his rep, and has a serious mad-on for Daredevil because of it. One of the best of the early Daredevil-Bullseye confrontation comes in Daredevil issue 146, cover dated June 1977. With a cover by Gil Kane and Dave Cockrum, it features a wounded Daredevil in a TV studio. On the surrounding TV monitors we see Bullseye, the implication being this is a live TV feed. Watch carefully, home viewers, the dialogue runs. Live from New York, it's Daredevil's death, brought to you by Bullseye. It's intriguingly laid out and features a nod to Saturday Night Live. Actually having your hero bleed on the cover was probably quite unusual for the time. Did you like it?
0: Yeah. I do find it pretty funny when the the guns they use look like spaceships because they can't show guns. (laughs)
1: Because they can't show proper guns, but they can show Daredevil bleeding all over the cover. Yeah. That's weird, that, isn't it? Mm. They're allowed to use blaster pistols, but... <laughs> it's got a little wing on it
0: as well. It does. It's, it's got a, it's just in case he flies. It's a little Megatron. It is. It's a that, Megatron. Holds call. Megatron. There Bullseye. Go,
1: Bullseye holds Megatron. I'm down with that. I like that idea. Duel was written by Jim Shooter, without by Gil Kane and Jim Mooney. Daredevil is swinging through the crowded streets of New York when his super sensitive hearing picks up the voice of Bullseye. Bullseye enters a gun shop and Dee Dee drops down to a nearby alleyway and switches back to Matt Murdock so he can better tail Bullseye. See, Bullseye tried to kill Foggy and Matt not too long ago and that kind of thing tends to stick in Matt's craw. Matt enters the gun shop and his radar sense picks up, through subtle changes in body language and the fact that Bullseye is about to drop the owner with a golf ball, that Bullseye is about to kill the owner. And Matt stops him but cannot prove what Bullseye was about to do. In fact, the owner and the passing cop think Matt is the perpetrator. In the confusion, Bullseye slips away. As Matt tries to relocate him, a golf ball hits Matt on the head, wounding him severely. Later that day, Matt's radar senses on the fritz due to the blow to the head, but Bullseye, still smarting from the recent confrontation where he failed to kill his target and let DD Dee Dee live, commandeers a TV studio and demands DD Dee Dee fight it out with him. To prove he's not bluffing, Bullseye has three hostages. He will kill if Daredevil doesn't rock up. Dee does arrive and the fight with Bullseye is brutal and unforgiving with Daredevil's radar sense floating in and out as they battle. Ultimately Dee beats on Bullseye and Bullseye pulls a weapon from his boot and manages to clip Daredevil. Enraged, Daredevil beats some more on Bullseye who turns into a quivering coward when faced with a better man. Dee manages to learn who it was who put the hit on Matt Murdock. Artist Gil Kane has a very unique style that is quite divisive amongst many comics readers. Personally, I've always liked Kane. His angular panels, his wacky angles, his squirred-off nostrils. I thought the guy was a unique and much underrated talent who always seemed subsumed under his inca. Such is the case here. Jim Mooney, a fine artist in his own right, is not a complimentary inker to Kane. Much as John Romita made Gil Kane look like John Romita, Mooney made John Romita look like Jim Mooney, and here Mooney makes Kane look like Mooney. Mooney was, as I said, a fine artist, but far more traditional. Kane pushed boundaries in terms of layout and angles. There's still some excellent Kaneisms in this issue. The panels on page seven were Matt Reels from being hit by the golf ball, Bullseye's pose when Dee Dee knocks him across the room on page seven and the obligatory nostril shots on pages 22 and 26 but it's not prime, Kane.
0: Do you like the art? Um, yeah, but the colouring doesn't do it any favours. Do you know what I think? No, it looks really muddy. If that's the colours or if it's the printing. Yeah, it could be. It could just be our copy of it. Yeah. I suppose that's
1: always possible. Daredevil swinging through New York at the beginning of the issue and he hears Bullseye talking to himself which I thought was very spurious. Hmm he's just walking through not talking to himself nowadays they would have had him on a cell phone wouldn't they yeah and Durdel would have heard him and stuff yeah, unless else talks to themselves yeah, well, everyone's talks to talk to themselves to further the plot. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Bullseye's just walking through New York talking to himself. He could be talking about anything. <laughs> yeah. Unless he's doing that thing that Colin Farrell did in the movie. That... <clears throat> that he kept doing, that he, he thought was scurry, but in fact just make him sound like he was about to have a bad asthma attack. <laughs> Dude, Devil clearly has nothing with him when he's swinging through New York, right? Yeah. There's no bag, there's no bulging backpack, there's no web sack. Like Spider-Man has, there's nothing at all. So where does his nitty suit come from?
0: Maybe he keeps things in bags in alleyways. You think? Because it's not just jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah, it's, oh no,
1: it's, it's, it's a proper expensive tailored suit because
0: Matt dresses well. A proper well. 70s. Yeah, it's, well, I'll give you that. It's a 70s tailored suit, but it's still... Did he quickly, yeah. like, style his hair as well? He did. took the mask Yeah, he does. He does have bequiffed
1: her as well, doesn't <laughs> yeah. he? I mean, yes, it's a very natty light brown suit, as Michael points out. It is the 70s. A green shirt. And what looks like a pink silk tie. I think we would have benefited this more in black and white. Yeah. Because we wouldn't have known that Daredevil dresses Dress is like a blind man. <laughs> There's no way someone as classy as Matt would wear a pink tie with a green shirt. It was the 70s. I can buy the green shirt and the brown suit, as you said, the 70s. But
0: a pink tie with a green shirt? No. Maybe he just uses the excuse that he, he's blind. No, I, uh, Daredevil... Matt. In, he goes around with t-shirts saying, I'm not I'm Daredevil. I'm not Daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> so he's he <goes> going around <laughs> with picked ties, why not? Yes, yes.
1: Okay, fair yeah. enough. I, I just thought it was a little bit daft, given that Matt has been established as being some new dresses very well yeah but okay, but right, maybe true.
0: foggy gave him the wrong ties a prank
1: <laughs> entirely possible <laughs>
0: maybe foggy's got
1: into his be- his building and swapped all his ties the around ties. yeah also he he's got a pink tie for a, such a suit that we it would go with. with. I yeah. don't know what that was not being somebody who wears a lot of pink, (laughs) but the tie that would go with that green and brown, he's put on a different shelf just to confuse him. Yeah, (laughs) Foggy's again. (laughs) Well, he is in our
0: excuse for the pink tie. In
1: our no prize for the pink tie, Foggy Nelson is not a very nice man. (laughs) It's a true Marvel scene where Matt stops the crime and then has to explain how he knew about it from before it happened, and then how
0: he did it, and then gets accused of doing the crime himself. Mm. I thought it was typically Marvel. I like like how Bullseye uses a golf ball as a weapon. Bullseye can use everything as a weapon, can't he? Yeah, like the pretzels in the film. Like the pretzels, yeah, or the peanuts or whatever it is they use.
1: Still, the scene where he gets brained by the golf ball is absolutely stunning. I thought it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Not just its visual depiction but just a sudden and random violent nature. Because you, you're reading this, and on my first read-through, this like, what happened to him then? Mm. I didn't actually spot the golf ball straight away. So it's only then, all oh, right, Bulls are brained him with a golf ball. Yeah. Well done, Radar Sense. <laughs> <laughs> really didn't
0: work there for him That's why the spider sensory just decides to stop working at any given moment uh,
1: well it stops working after he gets hit in the head yeah. so I don't know
0: what the excuse was for it not working
1: before he got hit in the head <laughs> seems to be a little bit of an illogicality in Jim Shooter's script though uh, maybe it isn't too far fetched that Bullseye does talk to himself because when we get to his apartment he talks to himself incessantly mm. when he's at home on
0: his own doesn't he maybe he records himself like Doctor Doom <laughs> To listen back to his every utterance later (laughs) for his memoirs. Yeah, alright, fair enough.
1: That seems fair enough to me. It's very convenient as well that Bullseye should completely fail to recognise Matt Murdock. Yeah. Who he was hired to kill just a few issues prior to this... Until the plot requires him to remember Matt Murdoch, which is here.
0: Maybe, and then we go, oh there's Matt Murdock. Maybe he's got like this assassin mind where he only remembers that one face for his targets, and then we move on to the next one. He forgets all about them. Yeah. Until he's later on. on in the issue. Until he needs to, yeah.
1: <laughs> Alright, yeah, fair enough. I'll I'll go with that. Uh, when Matt turns up at work, he's lost the pink tie. Rather sensible in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, structurally, I actually thought this issue was, was a bit of a mess. I thought it was all over the place. We learn in passing that Bullseye's taken over a TV studio and has got three people hostage. There's no dramatic build-up to it, mm. is there? It just happens. Foggy just simply mentions it casually to Matt. Oh, yeah, by the way, Bullseye's got people <laughs> hostage. Did, to, you, to did you know that about place. that? Yeah, don't go anywhere near, that. <laughs> Not that you would, because you're a blind dude. And <laughs> so I don't know why you'd want to go there. But if, if you do happen by you know, Bullseye's kidnapped people. And Matt's like, okay. <laughs> uh, there's not much of an indicator as well about how long this has been going on, what length of time this takes place over. Because Bullseye's had time to go home, yeah, get changed, get to a TV studio, take people hostage, and it get on television that he's done this. In the time it takes Matt to put a bandage on his head and wander over to Nelson and Murdoch. And then he decides, well, I'm not going to work for the rest of the day and goes home. The amount of times he does this in Daredevil comics, he turns up at the office and then something happens and he just goes, I'm going home now. How do you earn your money? You're never there. Uh, The cops are incredibly dismissive of Daredevil, mocking his cowardice Mm. for not showing up. Yet Shooter makes no mention of how
0: much time has passed other than one nebulous later. Caption. Maybe um, he walks really slowly since he's completely blind now. (laughs) Or he strode past the, the television place where Bullseye is, and the police were saying, oh, no, don't come round here. I mean, you're blind, so you don't know what you're doing, but turn around and walk the other way. I
1: suppose it's it's possible his radar sense does keep flipping in and out, so it may have taken him a bit longer to walk over there, but yeah. I don't know, whatever. Page 16 of
0: bowling alley appears from nowhere. <laughs> yeah. In the middle of a TV studio. Maybe the are filming some bowling thing.
1: Well it looked to Saturday me like Saturday
0: Night Live are doing a It looked a to me like sketch. they were on um, a talk show set. Um, yeah. I not, mean, it's, They're it's not sets next to each I other. Thought there could be I suppose. It could be the next set over was a bowling alley for some or reason. Maybe the guest on that show was a bowler and the so he was going to show off. Yeah.
1: yeah all right. Uh, <laughs> okay I'll no prize that. I'll take that. Uh, the reason I picked this largely was the fight at the end. Daredevil's fights have always been for me as someone primarily raised on the miller stuff, quite brutal. My Daredevil wasn't a big wisecracker, which was a contradiction to his early Spider-Man days, I know, and his battles were always up close and personal. This is one of the more brutal. Daredevil and Bullseye go at each other here, and Daredevil even gets shot. Bullseye's cowardice is nicely played. He's a big man when everything's going his way, but not so much when DD gets the upper hand. The ending is nicely ambiguous, with the implication that Bullseye has told DD what he wants to know. I do wonder how Bullseye wanted the world to see this, though, when he doesn't seem to have any cameramen. But filmed it must have been, as it plays a major role in an issue we'll be talking about next week. Mm. All ties together. It's all very clever. Nevertheless, it's a good, solid issue, one of the picks, as it shows the ferocity of the Daredevil-Bullseye conflict and how Bullseye's hatred has grown over the years. The story has a few issues, but the last half is as brutal a fight as Marvel could have gotten away with in the late 70s and demonstrated Dee Dee's grittier roots. This issue could have been a French Connection-style TV show, and it's in this milieu that Daredevil works best. Did you like it?
0: Um, I did, but only really because of the fight. Yeah, th- it's the fight that's the
1: memorable bit, and it's the fight that will be utilised to great effect in a issue that we'll cover next time,
0: mm-hmm. as
1: we've already said. It's very unusual that a character is defined by somebody other than their creator, especially in comics. No matter how good John Byrne or Mark Waid were on Fantastic Four, how lauded Walt Simonson's Thor is, or how good a job Roger Stern did with Spider-Man, all these creators are second to the original teams of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. It's even more unusual that one creator can pull this trick off twice, but Frank Miller did exactly that with Daredevil. Whilst I do not agree with former Marvel editor-in-chief Joe Quesada's statement that Daredevil was nothing before Frank Miller, it's true that Miller took the essence of Daredevil, the true potential of the character, and arguably moulded him into what he should have been. As we've shown in just our little snapshot of the series in this episode, Daredevil was a character in search of a direction. Was it crime noir, like the origin? Or science fiction, like the time displacement story? Was it superhero melodrama, like the foggy Karen Matt romance? Or swinging 60s sitcom, as with Mike Murdoch? Frank Miller, ably assisted by Roger McKenzie, Klaus Janssen and editor Denny O'Neill, managed to strip away everything and focus on the things that made Daredevil different the strip moved to being a very shadowy one art-wise. The stories where Miller would engage in huge retcons were more grounded, yet still fun, and the art was fluid and dynamic. In fact, if there's a problem with Miller's run, it's that other writers haven't been able to let it go. Therefore, we have a number of picks from the Miller era. For a complete look at the Miller run, I urge you to check out Dave's Daredevil podcast by J. David Wheater. It's fun and you'll enjoy it. For here, though, we've leapt forward to Daredevil 163, the first Frank Miller issue of Daredevil I ever read, when it was reprinted over here in a UK mag I've long since forgotten the title of. It's probably that Marvel comic that I mentioned earlier on. As we've stated many times before, the UK reprint policy was wacky and with DD large swathes of material from the early 100s remained unprinted as Marvel UK skipped over them to leap straight into the Frank Miller run. To this day, because of that, I've read very few issues of Daredevil and Black Widow. The cover to issue 164 by Miller and Joe Rubenstein is a masterfully composed cover. In the extreme foreground, we see a large green hand and the merest glimpse of a purple-clad thigh. A huge, muscular shadow falls over the background and over to the beaten and bloody form of Daredevil, clutching his billy club in a garbage-strewn alleyway. Beware the Hulk, the cover copy states. To be honest, the cover copy is irrelevant. When this issue was released, with the cover date of March 1980, the Incredible Hulk TV show was a smash hit. And it's logical to assume that this appearance was to buoy up sales of DD's title, which were in the toilet at this time. It's an excellent cover, very teasing without giving too much away. The problem we've got with this is we have the Omnibus, arguably one of the finest Omnibus Marvel have produced, but it's bloody hard to keep it open. What do you think of that cover, Mike?
0: I really like it. It's excellent, isn't it? It's kind of like that Wolverine cover where well, Hulk's reflecting in his claws. He's barely on it and you don't see much of him, but... But he dominates the cover. Yeah. Just by sheer dint of being the Incredible Hulk. Mm. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. the indestructible.
1: all the indestructible Hulk, yeah. all the rampaging Hulk. <laughs> any number of other names that he's been given over the years. Blind Alley was scripted by Roger McKenzie, pencilled by Frank Miller, and inked by Joe Rubenstein and Klaus Janssen. Miller has said in an interview putting Daredevil against the Hulk was his idea prompting the gag, well, what happens on page two? But in the same interview, he said Jim Shooter plotted this. To be fair, there isn't that much of a plot beyond Daredevil fights the Hulk. Not a lot to it, really. Not really. To be honest. At an expensive luncheon to re-elect Mur Goldie Wilson, sorry, DA Blake Tower, (laughs) Matt Murdock's radar sense picks up the blurring heartbeat of a lumbering behemoth. The Hulk is loose in New York City. Burley even bothering to excuse himself, Matt hurls himself off the balcony and uses his Billy Club, disguised as his cane, to descend to the floor where his unerring radar sense leads him to the creature. Using the silver tongue that has served him so well in the courtroom, Murdoch promises the creature that he will help locate that which he hates the most, Bruce Banner. But to do this, he needs to not cause terror in Times Square. Matt's eloquence works wonders and, as the Hulk calms down, his place is taken by his alter ego, physician, scientist, Dr. Bruce Banner. The next morning, Matt gives Banner some money and clothes and sends him on his way. Unfortunately, in his quest to get out of the busiest city on Earth, Bruce gets the subway. A man who can become a raging seven-foot-tall embodiment of pure rage deliberately gets into a subway car at rush hour. For an intelligent man, is pretty thick. With annoying ghetto blaster listeners smoking passages and the generally cramped environment, Joe Harnell's Hulk out music kicks in and a startling metamorphosis occurs. The Hulk's rampage takes him to the city, and before you can say Street Hawk, Matt Murdock hears of the events and makes the scene as Daredevil. Once again, he tries to talk the raging spirit down, but a trigger-happy cop opens fire on the creature, and raging him further, he brushes Dee Dee aside. The creature, now driven by rage, is pursued by our intrepid hero, who knows he's out of his death. Taking an abandoned Greyhound bus, D.D. drives it straight at the Hulk, who predictably smashes it to pieces. Daredevil dances balletically around the monster, ducking and weaving, informing him that his search is futile. He is the beast within Bruce Banner. The Hulk refuses to believe Dee Dee and backhands him across the way into, appropriately enough, the alley they met in last night. Daredevil pleads to the Hulk to let him help as he staggers to his feet, refusing to succumb. Wavering on his feet, he still implores the Hulk to trust him before his injuries are too much and he passes out. The Hulk roars and leaves in his own inimitable fashion as his quest continues. But for Daredevil, the fight is over. He's taken to Bellevue Hospital where he's placed on intensive care and fights for his very life. Ooh very excited. At least I thought it was. Uh, Excellent opening to the issue. It established that this is a $100 a plate campaign for D.A. Blake Tower. One of the things that made Marvel Comics feel real when I was a kid was little moments like this. D.A. Tower has been seen in a number of Marvel titles at this time. I remember him helping Spider-Man out a few times. And these little cameos established Marvel as being a real place. Adding to this, J. Jonah Jameson is here, as is Tony Stark. This does lead to a bit of a contradiction later in the story, when the cop on page 12 asks for backup from the Avengers and the FF, and he's told that they're out of town.
0: Iron Man obviously isn't out of town, is he? Maybe he just can't be bothered. <laughs> Iron Man's like Daredevil vs. the Hulk.
1: I really like Daredevil. There's two
0: blondes in the corner. <laughs>
1: I'm busy. I'm busy with these girls. i got stuff to do. I'm Daredevil. No, he's not. He's man? <laughs> Judge Coffin, a hardliner from previous issues, is here, and Foggy is telling an off-color joke to a priest. Did you like that? I thought that was really, really funny. And then the priest says to the rabbi, and the priest like, uh, "You do see the color, right?" <laughs> That was a nice touch. That was good. Coffin seems to have been a Roger McKenzie character, as as apart from a few mentions later on, he falls from prominence when Miller takes over as writer. Matt's reaction to Heather's new boyfriend, Disco Stew, is hysterical, (laughs) as his dress sense is also hysterical. He's got a wide, lapelled shirt open, to reveal his magnificent medallion and boasts of his disco moves. The only thing he's missing is a pink tie. <laughs> well, Daredevil can rock the pink tie, but he's <laughs> actually wearing a rather natty uh, tuxedo tonight. Yeah. He's, he's dressed exceptionally <laughs> well. He didn't let Foggy dress him this time. He did not let Foggy dress him this time, no, because Foggy is not dressed quite as classily, <laughs> is he? No. Foggy's tuxedo is bright pink. The way it's red. No, that's pink! <laughs> <laughs> My his own back <laughs> His tuxedo's pink <laughs> I could go with that I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of thing Matt Murdoch would do yeah. right frankly uh, Rico Heather's um, boy toy will show up a few more times normally when Heather and Matt have a falling out Heather is his girlfriend at this point mm. so he's gone through Black Widow and Heather and he'll move on to Electra and there'll be another girlfriend by the time we finish. Matt's reputation as a horn dog is well <laughs> deserved. I think it has to be said. The shots of Matt leaping off the balcony into the New York uh, are absolutely breathtaking. Miller has Murdoch fall for a while. No acrobatics or daring moves before swinging off of a flagpole. Speaking of the art, two more diverse artists as Klaus Jansen and Joe Rubenstein you could not hope to find... And yet they mesh slightly, magnificently here. Whether this was due to the fact that Miller was still doing tight pencils at this point, or whether Joe Rubenstein did the faces and Janssen did the backgrounds, I really don't know. Certainly page two looks like Klaus Janssen faces. But by the time we get to page four, that's very definitely a Joe Rubenstein face on Matt. Yeah. So whether Klaus Janssen only inked the first couple of pages and then had to give in... And Rubenstein took over from there. i like to say whether Rubenstein did the figures and Klaus Janssen did the backgrounds, whatever, I don't know. But I just know the art in this is great. There are bits where it's more Millery than others. Yes. So by more Millery, though, are you seeing more Klaus Janssen? Because it's Jansen who ain't the majority of his work in this. Yeah, and isn't the later stuff more Janssen than Miller? Yes, it's pure Janssen. You get to the point where Miller just stops doing pencils. Yeah. He just does loose thumbnails and Klaus Jansen takes over pencils and inks. All right. So, it gets to the point where it isn't Frank Miller's art at all, as we get further down the line. Unusually for a comic of this time period, the credits are a whole four pages in. Miller will experiment more and more with the structure of comics as an art form, as he develops himself as an artist. We'll eventually get to the point where sometimes the credits are nine, ten pages in. Yeah. As we have long pre-credit sequences. It's his run on Daredevil, not just him. Developing as an artist. Yeah, essentially you can see him become Frank Miller over the course of this
0: run. Yeah, if you just look at the first page and then the last page. Yeah, he develops universe, yeah.
1: a phenomenal amount as an artist, but also as a writer. Yeah, I think. His best work on this was to come after this, mm. and then he's kind of gone a bit downhill. But <laughs> that's that's just my opinion, you may disagree. The scene where Matt talks to Hulk down is wonderful. Matt's all in the Hulk's face, he's not backing down, and he doesn't lie to him. Mm. This is his lawyer training coming out here, isn't it? Yeah. You know, Matt's, Matt's capable of being eloquent, he's a lawyer. He's capable of talking to people and bringing them round to his way of thinking. Mm. That's what a defence attorney does. But here he's, he's managing to convince the Hulk to calm down. And he does say the Hulk will have to trust him to find Banner, and arguably that's what happens. Yeah. The Hulk finds Banner.
0: Not the way the Hulk has expected. But still. At this point did Hulk think he was a different person from Banner? Yeah, at this
1: point we were in the puny banner phase, weren't we? Where the Hulk didn't like Banner but didn't know why. They didn't know he was the same
0: person. Well, it doesn't he think that the two separate people in this? Yes. He right. That Banner's a separate person from Hulk. That kinda confused me a little.
1: Yeah, well it would I would imagine it would you've grown up in an era where Either Banner's been in total control or Hulk's been in total control or we've had entire story arcs where he's never even reverted to Banner. I've I've just
0: always known that the two are aware of each other.
1: Yeah, well that was always a question about the TV show. Did the Hulk in the TV show know that he was Banner?
0: They never addressed that at all. Did he not in that one episode where he has these kind of the hallucination bit where he sees Hulk in the sand dunes.
1: Yeah, but you, you got that that was being played inside Banner's head. Yeah. So Banner knew he's the Hulk. So Banner's confronting the Hulk in his head. But you never you never found out whether the Hulk knew
0: of Banner. Was that not the Hulk personality meeting as well, though? Yeah,
1: it could have been. But I always thought that there's a number of things that they didn't do in that TV show that I always thought were
0: obvious ideas. One, the Hulk and Banner split. Yeah because easy to do the well, two didn't, actors didn't they do that recently and it wasn't very good what yeah? in the comics
1: no no I with don't. the
0: Sylvester stuff oh see I didn't read the Sylvester stuff you did you stopped because it wasn't very good did I yeah
1: I think I, oh did I read the first three issues of that yeah, well, obviously you not remember <laughs> no, obviously me not remembering means that I didn't think it was very good no, no fair enough yeah they made them I don't know I don't remember obviously uh, this is an extremely highly strung Bruce Banner yeah, when merely mentioning the police can cause den den <laughs> den, den. den 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 music, and Matt's yeah. going, "Where's Matt?" <laughs> <laughs> Isn't he? Oh, we got to work with the uh... yeah, and, it, and Matt's lovely line about um, Bruce for both our sakes. Don't argue with me. Yeah, is really funny. There was another, one of the things I've read this entire omnibus over a weekend. I went through this entire Frank Miller run over a weekend, a couple of days. Mm. And one of the things that struck me about it, reading it as an adult, is how black it is in terms of its humour. Yeah. There's a lot of funny stuff in this, but it's very understated funny.
0: Yeah. And
1: I I think everyone who's took away from Frank Miller's run on Daredevil that it's gloom and doom hasn't read it properly. Yes, there's gloom and doom in it. Yeah. Yes, miserable stuff happens to him. But it's frequently funny. It's mm. uh, something I'd never noticed before when I, I read it previously. Um, Bruce getting on the subway, as we pointed out in the synopsis, is a bit dumb. And they mocked this in the whole film, didn't they? Did they? Ed Norton, the Ed Norton one. Where he says, yeah, me getting into a small tin right. can underground in the busiest city on the earth. We'll take a cab. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, they mock this very thing in that film. I wonder if that was a nod to this. It could have been. It could have been. I, I just sh-
0: found the ghetto blast a bit pretty funny.
1: Yeah, that's very, very of its time, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? It reminded me of the bit of Star Trek 4. I hate you, and I berate you! And then Spot does the neck pinch on it. Okay. <laughs> I did like the Hulk out. Yeah. Uh, the Hulk out was very inspired by the TV show, wasn't it? Mm. Just normal everyday events, the guy jabbing him with his cigar and being smacked around the head and all of that was a, a, a TV show Hulk out um, and another subtly funny moment Daredevil just bopping the Hulk on the nose yeah. in his billy club I laughed <laughs> out loud when I was reading that; I that was great um, I did wonder was this the first time the Hulk realised or was told that he was Banner because that seems like a pretty major development to happen in a guest shot in somebody else's comic yeah but I don't know if that's true it may not be, mm. but it did seem weird to me that that happened here. And um, there's really only one subplot in this issue. It's pretty, as you would say, linear. Um, Matt's relationship with Heather being on the rocks gets a passing mention, but the major subplot is Ben Urich's ongoing investigation into the secret identity of Daredevil, mm. which they would do quite badly in the film.
0: Yeah, <laughs> they would make. A... Well, that's always one of those things that become common knowledge that you forget he ever actually found out he's always that guy who found out Daredevil's identity yeah, but
1: before Daredevil ruined it just yeah. gave everyone it
0: anywhere yeah yeah. but it's like you never actually remember when he did it you just know that he did yeah you just know that he found it out which uh, is, is fair enough uh, utterly fantastic
1: issue yeah I thought that on the face of it was simply another Hulk on the Rampage story that in actuality deals with themes of loyalty, trust and that old comic stand by never giving up. Matt in this story tries everything in his power to stop the rampaging creature. Initially trying words and then when that fails resorting to fighting. But even here he uses purely defensive tactics. By and large, D.D. uses himself as a distraction. If the Hulk is focused on him, he isn't hurting anyone else, only attacking the Hulk outright on one or two occasions. He's also smart enough to know the best tactic is to just stay the hell out of the way, doing everything he can to avoid the Hulk's reach. The Hulk is definitely the villain of the piece in this story, and I think this was the first time we saw the true ramifications of the Hulk and his immense strength on a normal human. Once again, Miller was ahead of the curve, and once again, later creators would follow this path of thinking to its inevitable conclusion, and turn the Hulk into a murderous creature with no concept of right or wrong, forgetting that what worked for this story does not necessarily work in a standard Hulk tale. In fact, a case can be made that the Hulk here busts scant resemblance to the one featured in his own comics, anyway, and is really just an extension of the television show. Mm. Very definitely produced to cash in on the TV show, I thought. Yeah. Even the banner in this is Bill Bixby,
0: isn't he? Mm. In many ways, it look like him. Well, this reminds me of the issue of oh, God, other the issues seven. of Iron Man, where Iron Man fights the Hulk. He comes him down to Bruce Banner. He says, alright, I'll help you. He creates this device thing to stop him from turning into Hulk. What it does is pretty neat. It stops him from turning into the Hulk, but he still Hulk's out. But he's just Bruce Banner with the strength and anger of the Hulk. And so he turns into the Hulk anyway, so he ju- it just ends with a fight. It's <laughs> pretty much the same plot. But with two different but characters. But with two issues instead of one. Yeah. yeah well, okay. I don't mind stuff like that with the Hulk, though. I
1: always find stuff like that funny. Yeah. Uh, the Hulk and Daredevil appeared in live action together <laughs> in the second reunion movie based on the television series The Incredible Hulk. The trial of The Incredible Hulk was its name, and if they'd filmed this comic, maybe that movie wouldn't have been as boring as it was. Rex Smith, formerly Jesse Mock, on Street Hearts with Matt Murdock, Daredevil. <laughs> and, of course, Bill Bixby and Lou Farino reprised their roles as Dr. Banner and The Hulk, respectively. Not even an appearance by John Reese Davis as the Kingpin could prop up a rather bland and tedious movie. Not the best of the three reunion movies. Which in fact, one was the best? The first one, the one with Thor, was at least Charlie's dad. Yeah, with Good Luck <laughs> Charlie's dad. because yeah, at least that one feels like an episode of the show. Yeah. Whereas the other two are like, this, is this the same thing? Mm. No, the other two just weren't very good at all. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, part two of Give the Devil His Due, in which we will be looking at Daredevil issues one 200 and eighty-one, one hundred and ninety-one, two hundred, and two hundred and. 23 We hope you will join us and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Good luck. Hey Kids Comics is a The devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and No infringement is intended so don 't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly, this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, or one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.